so much. I, I would love to just sort of sit here and listen to all the other stories that are, that are here tonight. Uh, you folks have a very rich tradition, and I'm sorry I didn't find out about your church until fairly recently. Uh, just exciting, uh, the ministry that you've been involved in and the ministries that you've been supporting uh, around the world. Well, I have a question. <clears throat> How was your time this afternoon? Did the Lord speak to you in any way? Now, I wish we had time to just sort of get some discussion going, talk about what the Lord might have said to you, what, what kind of things that you're thinking about. But I will promise this. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be praying for you uh, in a special way. I get up at 4 in the morning, uh, and uh, before I go to have my swim at the YMCA, um, that starts at 5, uh, I have some special prayer time. And I'm going to be praying for you. Maybe you didn't get your half hour today. Yeah, I know how busy things are, and you maybe didn't have that planned into your schedule, so it's like, well, that wasn't an option. Well, uh, you're not off the hook. Uh, I'm going to keep praying for you. And uh, you'll have my email. So if the Lord speaks to you in some way and you'd like to have some dialogue uh, about what the Lord is laying on your heart, I would love to continue that dialogue. I'm, I'm a guy who sticks around. I'm not too far away. And I would love to continue to encourage you in whatever ways God is laying on your heart to have an impact uh, for the nation's with the message of Christ. All right. Well, that was this morning and this afternoon. Tonight, we are going to move on in our study in the book of Acts, and we're going to look briefly at um, the problems that resulted, in essence, from what our dear friend, the Apostle Peter, did. Peter was used of the Lord to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the people that his own people didn't like too much, but God loves, and God called him to open that door, and immediately after this, particularly through another rather unsavory character by the name of Saul, who also comes to faith, and then gets called to go specifically to the Gentiles as the apostle to the Gentiles, there begins to uh, occur a change in the character of the church. Up until Acts chapter 10, the church is exclusively people of Jewish heritage, either Orthodox Jews or Samaritans. But beginning at chapter 10, a whole new group of people begins to flood into the church. And you know, that kind of a thing can be a little disconcerting, can't it? Um, let me just give you a, a quick example. Uh, one of my friends, Lars Merling, has been a pastor for many years in a little church in Husby. In, uh, this is outside of Stockholm in Sweden. And it was a church with uh, probably about 110 members, but kind of gradually trending down, you know, the, the kind of relentless secularism just, you know, pounded into everybody's heads from, the, you know, from, the, from grade school through college, through the media, through the movies. It's just absolutely relentlessly nothing positive about the Christian faith ever gets said. And so that little evangelical congregation was struggling to survive. Well, Lars uh, made contact with some Iranians, and this kind of thing is happening a lot, and uh, as I told you earlier in the morning. And he began to share the gospel. And as he was sharing the gospel, a number of these Iranians came to faith. Uh, in fact, more than just a number, uh, about over a couple of year period, about a hundred of them 
came to faith in Jesus. And then they started bumping into Afghans. Now, I don't know what you know about Afghanistan. Um, a lot of people sort of think of Afghanistan as Taliban territory. Not a very positive place, but a bunch of these Afghans began to come to faith in Jesus. And they all wanted to come to Lars Merling's church. Well, that's a good thing. You know, we'll add 100 new Iranians and we'll add 50 new Afghanis. And as this happened over about a five-year period, you do the numbers. You know, you got 110 Swedes and then you add about 140 Afghans and Iranians and suddenly the Swedes are a minority in their own congregation. Now, you could see that as a threat, couldn't you? Or you could see it as an incredible opportunity that God has opened up to his church to reach the world and impact the nations with the message of Christ. But what kind of changes did that necessitate in the way we do church? By the way, I think that Lars found something very healthy, not only for his church, but also for the Iranians. Uh, and before we get into the scripture, let me just tell you what one of the biggest problems is for the emerging Iranian Muslim background church. And it has to do with the fact that even though they've come to Jesus, their deep culture is still very Islamic. And leadership in Islam is dictatorial. It's exclusively dictatorial. It's based on the example of Muhammad himself, who was a dictator. As I mentioned to you, uh, if you read through my book, you'll see that at the end. Muhammad essentially becomes a megalomaniac who is the mouthpiece of God and no one can question him in any way, shape, or form. And this deep cultural tradition ingrained in people like Iranians have been under Islam for 1,400 years. So it's deeply ingrained at the, at the, at the, sort of the deepest levels of culture. So when an Iranian pastor you know, takes over the leadership of a congregation, he's used to being top dog. And everybody else is under him, and even more importantly, any young leadership rising up in the congregation is almost invariably regarded as a threat. Leadership is looking to take over my little empire here. And so what do these guys in top leadership do? They play whack-a-mole. You know whack-a-mole, don't you? There's a mole, whack it, and another, whack it, whack it, whack it, whack it. Keep them from rising up. And what does that do? Well, it destroys the natural pattern for the development of new leadership that's essential in the church. One of the interesting things is when you bring together a large group of Iranians with Swedes who have a different pattern about leadership, they actually balance each other out. And the Iranians who are rising up in leadership don't feel as threatened by others because they're in a multicultural congregational setting. So sometimes when a whole bunch of people flood into a church that aren't quite like you, it's not only good for you, it's good for them. Do you get my point? Sometimes the idea of a multicultural congregation that really shows us what heaven is going to be like can be something that's very healthy because it balances out weak points in the different individual cultures that are represented in the congregation. So, let's get back to the scriptures 
And as you know, um, Gentiles began to flood into the church. And so the Jewish percentage in the congregations probably gradually began to shrink from being 100% to being 90%. Well, that's not a threat. You know, 10% Gentiles. I don't mind that. Some token Gentiles in the congregation. You know, that's cool. And then it was like 80, 20, and yeah, it's a kind of a struggle uh, because they like to do things a little differently. And I've even heard they've been eating bacon for breakfast. What are we supposed to do about that? What, are, what will we do with our potlucks? What happens if somebody brings the wrong kind of food to the potluck? And then when it gets to be 70-30 or maybe even worse 60-40 and you realize that eventually you're not going to be in control of your own church, what happens then? Well, there are those who come along and say, these new people, they need to be like us. They need to behave like us. They need to be doing the things that we do. They need to come over to our side. And the question that arises then is, what kind of a canyon are you going to dig between the people that want to come to Jesus and your church? What kind of a canyon do you want to dig? Well, let's take a look at the passage. And I'm, it's a fairly lengthy passage. Forgive me, I, I love to read contexts and you really don't get the understanding as well from occasional one or two verses. So let's, let's read the context together here and see what happens. Beginning at verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought... Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Conflict in the church. Ever run into this? If you've been around for a while, you've seen quite a few things like this, I'm sure. The church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And by the way, lest you think that these are just kind of really narrow-minded and bigoted sort of people, I'll read through the Old Testament a little bit. I mean, what does it say about people who aren't circumcised? They should be cut off from the people of God. You see, this, is, this has got some foundation. It's got some stuff in the Old Testament. You know, this, this isn't, you know, somebody way out there in some kind of crazy thinking these are people who are people of the Word, and there is no New Testament at this point. Remember that. There is only Old Testament to look at. And I can really understand why these people would say this. It's, it seems to have a foundation, doesn't it? The apostles and elders met to, dis to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. 
God, who knows the heart, showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that they are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And that was the conclusion of the first great church council. Here are a couple of thoughts. You know, it's interesting. What do we usually think of when we think of a church council? We think of a council to determine what's the creed of the faith, right? Or a council to work out, okay, what, what books should belong in the New Testament? Uh, what's the canon going to be? And indeed, there were church councils that determined these things, that determined what is an, uh, you know, biblical theology uh, of who God is and who is Christ and what's the nature of God the Father and, and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit and the idea of Trinity and all the rest of that determined by wonderful church councils. But I find it interesting that the very first church council had to do with the question of what do we do with new members coming into the church. You see, the early church was not built on a principle of maintenance. That would have been absurd. There was nothing to maintain. There were no buildings. There were no denominations. There were no paid clergy. This was a grassroots movement of lay people seeking to follow Jesus Christ and to make his name known to the ends of the earth. And what I find exciting about that is, number one, the church is the only organization on planet earth that exists primarily for those who are outside of it. Right? You know, all other organizations on this planet exist for the benefit of their members. And I'm not saying that the church doesn't benefit you. My goodness, what a mess I was before I came to Jesus. And what a wonderful help I got through the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ. But you know, it's not about us looking inward to take care of ourselves. The purpose of the church is to look outward 
and to bring those outside of the church into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And so this first church council wrestles with how do we bring these people into the church? How do we disciple them? What do we require of them? And they came to one simple principle. We will not do anything to unnecessarily hinder their coming to Jesus. We want to have a wide open door. There are hindrances. The cross of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block. And I don't care whether you're Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim. Even though Muslims deny the crucifixion of Jesus, a Muslim must admit that Christ was crucified for his sins in order to come to faith. Furthermore, he who hath the Son hath life. He who hath not the Son hath not life. If a Muslim does not accept that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God once for all... Oh, and by the way, lest you get a little bit embarrassed about this, you know, because Muslims can be really emphatic. You know, you Christians, you've got three gods. What? You, you think it's a unity? One plus one plus one? How is that one? Well, one times one times one is, you know, one. But the reality is, he who hath not the Son hath not life. And by the way, here's a beautiful thing. Some years ago, uh, a Muslim poet by the name of Daud Rahbar, he was a Sufi. And uh, he decided he wanted to study the Quran to understand the nature of God in the Quran. And he came to America to study at Columbia, not our Columbia here, but Columbia University up in the Northeast. And he wanted to study what is the nature of God in Islam. Because he was a Sufi, and Sufis are big on relationship with God. Well, when he got done with his study, he wrote a book. It's now a rare book. It costs like 200 bucks on the, on the used book market on eBay. But the title of the book was The God of Justice. And he came to the conclusion that the God of Islam is a God of absolute, unmitigated justice. Do righteousness, go to heaven. Break the law, go to hell. And there is no middle ground. And this God, you cannot know Him. You cannot experience Him. You cannot have a relationship with Him. The only thing you can know about Him is the law, the law, the law, and nothing else. And when he got done with his study, he wrote a rather poignant statement. It's kind of like a rhetorical question. But this is what he said. Quote, I cannot worship a God who does not understand human suffering. Now, what do we have in Jesus? A God who in the flesh experiences human suffering. And in fact, Hebrews says an almost incredible thing. It says he learned obedience by the things he suffered. I don't know how that works. How does God learn something? Well, experientially, you may know something intellectually, but God experienced it in Christ. And therefore, He understands us. Therefore, we can know Him. Therefore, we can have experience of Him. Therefore, we can have a relationship with Him. And friends, this is a message Muslims desperately, desperately, desperately need. So preach Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent to suffer for sinners and in that process to fully understand us and to love us as we are. This is a revolutionary message for Muslims. So, yes, 
There are stumbling blocks. There are things you have to go through. But does that mean that we need to put unnecessary stumbling blocks? For this group that we see here, some people were saying they've got to be circumcised, they've got to keep the kosher laws, they've got to do all this other stuff and be just like us. Then we'll be comfortable with them. Well, I need to conclude for tonight, and I just want to give you a more practical application. Let's imagine now that we're back in, well, actually, we don't have to imagine that. We're here, Orangeburg, South Carolina. Do you suppose there are any uh, Hispanic trailer parks in Orangeburg or in the county? I would virtually guarantee you there are. If you go to Pelion, South Carolina, I haven't done demographic research on you folks and your situation, but I have done it in Pelion, South Carolina, and there are three Hispanic trailer parks in Pelion, South Carolina, all of them within a stone's throw of an evangelical church. If you go into those evangelical churches, for the most part, they are not even aware that there is a trailer park there, or if there is, they're not particularly interested. Now, when God puts people who don't know Jesus within a stone's throw of your church, is there a calling for you to ask the question, Lord, what would you have me do? Now, I realize that there are some issues here. You know, the first thing that any normal person would say, well, I, I don't speak Spanish. So what am I supposed to do to, you know, to read? You know, they can't come into our church because we're in English. And you know, there's, there's a chasm there. Cross over that chasm to get into church. You almost have to be an English speaker. And then, you know, who amongst us can minister amongst them? We don't, you know, I don't think I know anybody here who... Speak Spanish. Well, ask yourself the question, is it necessary to salvation that you speak English? Uh, is it necessary to salvation that you have to come to this particular English language service? Are these requirements that are written, you know, in, in holy writ? This is how you get saved. Well, you all kind of smile and you say, well, yeah. No, we're not required to do that. We're not required to, to make them cross that kind of a canyon to come to us. But then what are we supposed to do? We're not experts. We're not missionaries. We don't speak the language. So I thought to myself, if you really want to reach this Hispanic trailer park, and by the way, I'm just doing this as an example out of the blue. Uh, I don't even know, you know what the situation is here. But... Supposing you wanted to do a Sunday school in a Hispanic majority trailer park. What, what would you do to do that? Well, you know, first of all, it might involve you prayer walking through the trailer park. And just saying, Lord, you know, we talked this morning about baby steps because you, you really don't know where this is leading. <laughs> you know, you don't know where this is going. But, you know, I can pray and I can walk and ask the Lord lead me to people. We did this in Pelion, and a very interesting thing happened. The people, as they walked through and prayed, they bumped into three different Guatemalans who were all believers in Jesus, who had, were working and living in that trailer park, but they were disconnected from the body of Christ. They were immigrants in America with no connection to any church, and just kind of, you know how you, get, you can have a, a Christian that's just a floater? just kind of floating, not really, you know, doing much. 
And suddenly we began to realize, well, you know, there are people here that we can link to to start a ministry. Here's the other thing. As they were prayer walking through the trailer park, they bumped into lots of kids, lots and lots of kids, and every single one of the kids spoke perfectly good English. Parents didn't, but the kids did. And then the thought occurred, well, you know, wouldn't be too hard to start a Bible study, or not a Bible, a Sunday school for these kids. Well, of course, you know, then the immediate reaction from the powers that be is, well, you know, we've got to get buses, we've got to find bus drivers, we've got to get permits and permission from the parents to drive them all the way here to the church. Is it necessary to salvation that they have to be bused to the church? Why couldn't you try to do this in the trailer park? And by the way, don't we have some high school students who have been studying Spanish? Well, yeah, we've got a bunch of them. Well, you know, if you put a high school kid in a situation where they have to use their Spanish, you'd be astonished how fast they become fluent. My son went down on a mission trip after years of just studying Spanish in a classroom. He was down in Guatemala, and within three months, he was speaking relatively fluently in Spanish. And imagine if you're doing that for six months in a trailer park. It would come quickly. All this by way of saying, I do not want to make an unnecessary barrier. And the early church made this decision. We won't make the Mosaic Law and people becoming like us the barrier that people have to cross over, the canyon that they have to build a bridge over in order to come into the church of Jesus Christ. I think this is a spiritual principle for us. If we are truly expansion-oriented, we're not just maintaining what we've got. We're saying, Lord, take us out to the nations and, and start right here in Orangeburg. Start with us. Who can we reach? And then as we try to reach them, are we trying to make them like us? Or are we inviting them to meet Jesus where they are? James uses that expression that they would be as they are in coming to Jesus. And then maybe over time, and, and by the way, this is what every immigrant population always faces. Their kids leave the culture, or at least a large portion of it. Right? So every immigrant church in America, and this goes back 200 years, more than that, eventually has to switch over to English because the kids grow up and they're English speakers primarily. So over time, those people become members of your church quite naturally. They bring in a Hispanic element to your church, but they're Hispanic Americans because they speak English as their primary language. Do you kind of see how, how this works? We're looking at this kind of generationally speaking. And I think the principle of God's word is simply this. No unnecessary barriers for people to come to Jesus. I just want to be planting seeds in your hearts and minds. There's a harvest field right here in Orangeburg. It may be culturally diverse. It may be linguistically diverse. It may not be your kind of people. If we had some of the guys that I work with at Kirkland coming in here with you know, tattoos you know, from uh, head to feet, uh, how are you going to feel about those tattooed people riding it on their motorcycles? No unnecessary barriers. Yes, Jesus. Yes, the cross but nothing else. Can we do that here? Can we reproduce that missionary attitude right here in the same way that we would 
if God took us to the ends of the earth. So friends, I want to pray for you. And also remind you, Monday night, we're going to talk about the Jesus toothbrush. Are you ready for that? All right, well, let's close with a word of prayer.